Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's last-ditch attempt to get House Democrats on board the framework of a deal with Senate Democrats for a $1.85 trillion reconciliation bill passed alongside a previously voted on $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill. However, the two Democratic holdouts, Senators Manchin and Sinema, have still not made clear what they support in the slimmed-down reconciliation bill, leaving progressives in the House leery of supporting a package they still don't have all the details on. Joining us is Jim Manley, a D.C.-based independent public affairs consultant, Democratic strategist and 21-year veteran of the United States Senate, where he served as a senior advisor to Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid for the last six of those years, and before that, served 12 years as an aide to the late Senator Ted Kennedy. We'll discuss how it is uncertain Biden will get the support he needs as the country's leader abroad at the UN Climate Summit on Monday in Glasgow, after almost begging his fellow Democrats to help him out, imploring them, quote, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that the House and Senate majorities and my presidency will be determined by what happens in the next week. Then we'll speak with Lauren Windsor, the executive producer of The Undercurrent, a grassroots political news program, who on Saturday attended an event hosted by the Claremont Institute at which she posed as a Trump supporter and recorded Trump lawyer John Eastman defending his January the 6th coup attempt and praising his memo to overturn the election. This after Eastman had lied to the National Review about his memo not being viable and crazy, while the Claremont Institute were defending him, saying the memo was, quote, maliciously misrepresented and distorted by major news outlets. Then finally, we'll speak with Tracy Lewis, policy counsel in the energy group at Public Citizen, where she works at the intersection of climate policy and financial regulatory policy. She joins us to discuss the testimony of oil company executives today before the Congress, at which the heads of the major oil companies and the American Petroleum Institute denied funding misinformation about climate change, even as the American Petroleum Institute is busy funding Facebook ads attacking vulnerable Democratic incumbents for supporting climate change initiatives. And before we go to our first guest, while Background Briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now, Jim Manley, a D.C.-based independent public affairs consultant, Democratic strategist, and a 21-year veteran of the United States Senate, where he served as a senior advisor to Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid for the last six of those years, and before that, served 12 years as an aide to the late Senator Ted Kennedy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jim Manley. Glad to be with you once again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Jim. And President Biden uh, went to the Hill, to Capitol Hill today, to talk to the Democrats uh, just ahead of heading off to Rome to meet with the Pope and then on Monday with the UN Climate Conference in uh, Glasgow. 
he tried to rally the House Democrats around the deal. He said that we have a framework that will get 50 votes in the United States Senate. I don't think it's hyperbole to say that the House and Senate majorities and my presidency will be determined by what happens in the next week. No one got everything they wanted, including me, but that's what compromise is, that's consensus, and that's what I ran on. So obviously he's trying to put a good face on it, but is he going to have something in Europe finished? It doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like even uh, by the time he talks to the Pope that they'll have a deal, right? No, I, yeah, I mean, hope springs eternal, but it's difficult, if not impossible, to imagine this being all wrapped up over the next couple of days. Among other things, there will be no vote on the House today on the infrastructure bill. I know the Speaker and her team keep on holding that out as a possibility, but I'm here to tell you there's not a snowball's chance in hell uh, that's going to happen for a variety of different reasons. I want to be clear to your viewers. I, I for one, I don't want to start an argument, but I, for one, think that compromise, I learned this from Senator Kennedy, was, you know, compromise is never a dirty word. You can never get all you want. And uh, sometimes you got to take what you can and then work on the rest. So, you know, depending on the details, you know, when you put this together with the other bills, with uh, with the other money uh, that has been passed, I mean, it's a pretty healthy chunk of change, $4.2 trillion or something. And so the problem is, is that, you know, among other things, is that Senator Cinema and Senator Manchin are refusing to publicly support what they've negotiated in private. For the life of me, I have no idea what, uh, uh, you know, they're up to here, but, um, this is, you know, despite the president going to the Hill for the second time, you know, I got to tell you, he's walking away at least today uh, empty handed because it's, it's difficult for me to imagine this thing getting done in the next couple of days. So is it possible that at the end of the day, he won't have the votes from Cinema and Mansion? I, for one, as I just suggested, I must admit I have no idea what they're up to, but they are sending all the wrong signals right now. There's a part of me that thinks that actually Senator Cinema and Senator Manchin would be very happy if this reconciliation bill got uh, torpedoed. Uh, again, they're doing absolutely nothing to try and help the Speaker and President Biden sell this deal over in the House. And as, as a result, the level of mistrust between the House and the Senate is only increasing. And uh, the progressives in particular, probably correctly, are saying they're not going to reach an agreement or allow a vote to pass the infrastructure bill until they get more clarity from the reconciliation bill. And I got to tell you, I don't blame them for thinking that. You know, there's no one in their right mind would agree to support uh, or would uh, trust Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin in this kind of situation. Well, what we know so far is that some of the major initiatives have been torpedoed by both a mansion and cinema. Cinema torpedoed, I think, one of the most important democratic promises of all, which is to lower prescription drug prices. And by the way, even Trump tried to have that done. So it's very popular with the electorate. She's torpedoed that, and then Manchin just torpedoed the idea yeah. of uh, giving the, the IRS more resources to go after tax cheats. She, uh -huh. He was speaking next to a major tax cheat billionaire in uh, Washington, the head of the Carlyle Group, when he said that. So uh -huh. your fear is that they still, at this late stage, are not entirely clear. And when you say that they agreed to stuff in private, which they then in public turned against... Can you give us an example? Well, 
couple different things. First of all, before I forget, a uh, little nugget for your readers. Um, I don't think this has been publicly reported yet, but uh, I've been told uh, that Senator Sanders is actually seriously, uh, well, we know publicly that he's, um, you know, demanding uh, the inclusion of the, his Medicare expansion. Uh, one of the biggest problems, as I understand it, is that he's also demanding to pay for it by uh, negotiating uh, of allowing the language uh, to negotiate for prescription drug coverage, which of course is going to set pharma on fire and, you know, those so-called centrists in the house uh, that are opposed to this. So my point is that there's a lot of machinations uh, going on behind the scenes still, which is why I don't think that we're going to see a vote anytime soon. But to go back to your original question, maybe I wasn't too clear what I was suggesting, what I want to, uh, I'll be perfectly upfront and say, Senator Cinema and Senator Manchin have been very upfront, at least privately, uh, with at least the president about what they want. And I don't see necessarily they're walking back on what they talked about privately. My concern, my issue is that with this package, which they helped negotiate, they refuse, they are going out of their way to refuse to broadly support the deal to give the assurances that the House progressives in particular are needed uh, to allow this process to go forward. And I, again, I don't quite get what the deal is. Um, they got what they want. So whether they're trying to rub it in uh, the progressives face or whether they're actually, again, trying to kill this thing remains to be seen. But I got a lot of questions about uh, how these two are handling uh, the last 24 hours in particular. Well, what's been clear from what Senator Sinema's done and we know that Senator Manchin has done everything he can to stop alternative energy and to keep coal and oil and gas subsidies going, although there is $555 billion in this, and I guess that's for alternative energy and electrification of transportation. And Biden obviously needs something ahead of the Monday meeting in uh, Glasgow to show that the U.S. Is, is involved in dealing with climate change. But Cinema has been the champion of not allowing the repeal of the Trump tax cuts, not allowing tax on billionaires, and not allowing mm -hmm. the raise in the corporate tax. And alternatively, you've got Congressman Richard Neal, the chair of the Ways and Means Committee, saying that they're actually going to get rid of the state and local tax provision that the Republicans put in to punish the blue states. So that's going to cost the Treasury hundreds of billions of dollars. So yep. it's always been a problem, hasn't it, Jim, of getting revenues. And they have been against getting revenues, which is a way to sabotage the progressive agenda. Yeah, or at least strangle it in its grave and or reduce it to the extent possible. Yeah, again, as a lot of people like to point out, there are no billionaires in West Virginia. So that's one part of the equation, which, again, I, I, I hate to keep on going back to it, but what Senator Manchin is up to, or Cinema is up to, again, I don't quite understand it. She's railed against some of these tax cuts before, but now she's going out of her way to try and, you know, de deny, you know, the, the package, the revenue it needs, and they're forcing uh, proponents to come up with all sorts of, you know, I hate to say it, but phony and or fake pay-fors. Uh, you know, a lot of these, <laughs> again, as I've that, you know, I support the package, but I got to tell you, uh, I'm not so sure how much 
some of these so-called pay-fors are going to stand up to the real uh, into the reality. And you are right. There's been no mention of the so-called SALT deduction uh, so far. It's not in the package. Uh, I assume the speaker is going to pull that out at the last minute to try and attract, you know, the votes of the, you know, eight or nine so-called centrist, yeah, centrist Democrats in the House that are demanding, you know, some version of uh, of relief there. So that's just going to be another complication uh, as we head further into the process, which, again, as I've said earlier, I don't see ending anytime soon, even though I hope I'm wrong about this. Well, in terms of Medicare coverage, apparently the compromise is that they would expand Medicare coverage to include hearing, but not vision or dental services. So already there's been some serious compromising on, and of course, they're not guaranteeing paid family and medical leave for workers is a big blow, particularly the Senator Patty Murray, who got very upset saying Mm -hmm. she didn't like the idea of a man telling a lot of women in this country that they can't have paid family leave. That was clearly a yeah, and Senator, Oh, very much so. And Senator Gillibrand was just on the Senate floor about an hour ago, once again, uh, getting in Senator Manchin's face, trying to get him to sit down and negotiate. And the guy, again, I feel bad saying this, but, you know, he's such a lad, you know, whether he's a coward or whatever, but he won't sit down and negotiate with uh, Gillibrand. You know, whether, again, the time has come and gone for it to happen. But the fact of the matter is that she, uh, they're not letting up. And again, apparently Senator Gillibrand tracked him down on the Senate floor during the last vote and got in his face. And he was seen basically walking away after talking to her for like five minutes. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the paid family, the, the announcement last week, excuse me, last night that the paid family leave was out of the bill was for me was the real uh, capstone, if you will, of the day. That was a, a clear shot at progressives uh, by Manchin and Cinema to them and to the rest of the body in both the House and the Senate, for that matter, uh, that they are not getting everything they want. So, and again, why they're not embracing this thing more strongly is beyond me. I just don't get it. Well, uh, I assume they've got a strategy somewhere, but I sure as hell don't know what it is. Exactly. And obviously both Manchin and particularly Cinema were the champions of the so-called bipartisan bill. And the truth of the matter is, the reason that so many Republicans join that is that it's a Republican bill. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have anything to do with alternative energy. It's old deferred maintenance infrastructure across and heavily weighted for the red states. No urban infrastructure for public transport in blue states, etc. So, you know, the Republicans have already got a big win with the bipartisan one. Yeah. So why can't the Democrats yeah. get something like a win? I mean, it's just well, extraordinary look, that these two Democrats are the ones that are, are doing all the work for the Republicans. Yeah, let me just say this. I mean, going back to the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, again, it, it, this does nothing for the people that are affected that you know didn't get what they want in this bill. But on a certain level, I find that move by Senator Sinema fascinating. You know, she jumped into this process, threw herself into the negotiations, for better or for worse, um, and help to fashion a, uh, a bipartisan bill. Say what you will about the particulars, but again, she helped to fashion a bipartisan bill. Since then, and, and she was hope- and she was trying to tout the hell out of that thing as showing that she's actually ready for the, bid, uh, the big leagues. Since then, uh, she's but done nothing but damage her reputation. And, uh, you know, any glow she got out of, you know, the, the momentary win helping to get that bill out of the Senate. 
is now gone in the dustbin of history as she destroyed what's part of a re- what's left of reputation, at least in Washington, D.C., uh, when it comes to how she's handled this reconciliation bill. I, I, I again, I, I, I just simply don't get what she's up to. It's just it's just absolutely fascinating to watch. But, um, you know, right. she just well, it may just have it. it may have a lot to do with the fact that it's about her personality. It's not necessarily rational in the way that a lot of what Trump did wasn't necessarily rational because she's very <laughs> yeah. egotistical, very vain, kind of a Murray yeah. type. She gave the thumbs down, yeah. remember, to $15 oh. an hour raise. She may just be basically loving the attention and she doesn't go to the press. Any politician who refuses to talk to the press, to my mind, is very suspicious. Heck, not only should, does she not talk to the press, but uh, she's got a habit of uh, avoiding the, uh, the caucus her caucus meetings when uh, she expects it to be confrontational and or when she expects to be the subject of the, uh, of the discussion. You know, that, again, that's no profile in courage. That's for damn sure. Just again on Tuesday, last Tuesday, she uh, key meeting uh, to start this week and she d- didn't deign to show up. Well, Jim Manley, I hope your prediction is wrong. I hate to see Biden twisting in the wind out there in front of the other world leaders and this whole package going nowhere it's definitely it makes it feel like mansion and cinema have some kind of suicide pact going they're going yeah. to take the whole democrats well, the down is, yeah i want to be clear it's, this is going to get done at some point i just can't right. tell you when it's going to get done right yeah but in the meantime you're right yeah the president is overseas he made his pitch to the caucus today saying that he needs us before he's facing world leaders and i'm not so sure that uh, he's going to get us all i know is uh, again, there's been no official announcement, but I, I just refuse to believe that there's going to be a vote tonight. Jim Manley, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Ian. And again, I mean, speak with Jim Manley, who's a D.C.-based independent public affairs consultant, Democratic strategist, and 21-year veteran of the U.S. Senate, where he served as a senior advisor to Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid for the last six of those years, and before that served 12 years as an aide to the late Senator Ted Kennedy. We're going to take a restation break. We're back speaking with Lauren Windsor, the executive producer of The Undercurrent, who on Saturday attended an event hosted by the Claremont Institute at which she posed as a Trump supporter and recorded Trump lawyer John Eastman defending the January 6th coup attempt and praising his memo to overturn the election. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lauren Windsor, the executive producer of The Undercurrent, a grassroots political news program, and the creative director of American Family Voices, a progressive non-profit focusing on banking and campaign finance issues. She blogs under the name Lady Libertine. And on Saturday, she attended an event hosted by the Claremont Institute, at which she posed as a Trump supporter and recorded John Eastman defending the January 6th coup attempt. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lauren Windsor. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And of course, 
the House Select Committee investigating January 6th uh, planning on subpoenaing John Eastman. And we know that it's pretty much on the record that he tried on January the 5th in the Oval Office. He tried, along with the former President Trump, to lean on the vice president to literally throw out the results of the elections and not certify Biden's victory. And he also spoke on the following day at the January 6th rally, just ahead of the storming of the Capitol, where he actually got fairly (laughs) wound up, to put it mildly. I mean, the guy is so unbelievably partisan, and he's just an ardent Trumpster. Little wonder Trump had him there in the Oval Office as the few sensible people had all been purged and had abandoned him. But what I find extraordinary and valuable about what you've brought to the table here is that just recently in the National Review, Eastman said that the whole thing was is not true and that the plan that the press have been talking about was not viable, it was crazy. And then at the Claremont Institute, they sent out a memo saying earlier that Eastman was maliciously misrepresented and distorted by the major media outlets and that he did not ask the vice president to overturn the elections. Well, what he told you on camera, posing as a somebody who stormed the, helped storm the Capitol, joined the throng that stormed the Capitol, was quite the opposite. So <laughs> you got a scoop on your hands, Lauren. Uh, thanks, Ian. I was shocked that he was, you know, that brazen in the conversation. You know, I, I had expected to him him to be much more um, demure about it. Well, he wasn't. He let it all hang out. And he obviously he's proud of what he did, but they've been lying about it. He's been lying about it, and the Claremont Institute have been lying about what he said and what the intention of what he said. So that's what's so valuable about what you've brought. You, this, is, this is the real John Eastman, right, the one that you brought forth. I believe so. I mean, his enthusiasm certainly did not seem like a, a, a put on in, in any way. So, Well, let's play a, a little bit of your exchange with him, and um, we'll also play some more later, but let's go to it now. It's amazing. Well, but I read your memo, and I thought it was solid in all of its legal arguments. Yeah. And I just, I was floored that, that Mike Pence didn't do anything. I mean, why didn't he act on it? Because you gave him the legal reasoning to do that. I know. I know. Now it's And now, in a, in a piece in The Atlantic two days ago, they're already anticipating Trump winning in 2024, and they're using my arguments from that memo that they all said had no credibility to argue that Kamala Harris can block Trump's electoral votes. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, I mean, come on, people, you can't... So basically everyone's going to say, you're being proven right. Yeah, exactly, exactly, except they're not saying that, right? <laughs> but that's what they mean. Yeah, exactly, like, exactly. all of your legal reasoning is totally solid. Yeah, yeah, it, there's no question, but... Uh, and you've been listening to The Real John Eastman in a video uh, done by our guest Lauren Windsor on Saturday at the Claremont Institute event where John Eastman uh, revealed that he really did write the memo. He's proud of the memo that was designed. Every lawyer in the country thinks it's an absolutely absurd piece of legal nonsense. But nevertheless, this is a man who's proud of what he's done. And previously, and the Claremont Institute previously denied his intentions, but it's clear what his intentions are. So what's your sense then of whether or not this is going to help in... (laughs) If the House Select Committee intended to subpoena him, 
I think they've been given a little more ammunition, haven't they? I believe so. Um, these clips appeared on Rachel Maddow on Tuesday, and the you know announcement that they were you know intending to call him happened later Tuesday evening. I went on Joy Reid last night on MSNBC, and um, Adam Schiff uh, was on immediately after me to talk about the significance of the video, and um, you know he thought it was you know pretty damning that basically the Eastman and Claremont are insurrectionists in suits, but, you know, pretending to be otherwise. So I, I do think that they will act on this. I do think that, that uh, John Eastman will be subpoenaed. Well, there's a lot more of your video after, after he really incriminates himself, where he talks about all of the stuff that's a part of the Stop the Steal alternative narrative, the alternative reality it is. But did you get the impression he actually believes all that stuff? That he believes that Antifa were behind the storming of the Capitol? And all of this other nonsense that he spouted to you for towards the end of your... You spent quite a bit of time with him. The Yeah, it was altogether the interaction was about 8 minutes and 20 seconds. And, you know, we cut two videos that we put out and then put the entirety of the footage out on, on YouTube. We're working on clipping uh, the rest of that. But the second clip that we put out has all of this, you know, of him talking about conspiracy theories. And he states that he says, he said, this is a fact. I have the evidence, you know, he says that the, you know, FBI was embedded within, uh, you know, the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers that it was a setup. Their guys walked into a trap. And he seemed pretty adamant about it. I mean, you know, it, it seemed to me like he believed that was the case. Well, at his speech on January the 6th, just before the storming of the Capitol, he was sprouting up all kinds of ridiculous conspiracies about the elections. Uh, he even brought up the old canard that the Democrats got a bunch of dead people to vote. So... He's a true believer out there in, in terms of, I mean, he might as well be QAnon Central, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, in part of the footage, you know, we referenced his speech, you know, oh, I saw your speech. And that's what was so moving to me was that, you know, I didn't know that, you know, uh, you could have a, a folder of uh, votes that you were just uh, holding on to for the end. Like, how, how is this, how can this happen in this day and age? And he's like, yeah, it's crazy. You know, it's, yeah, he's talking about the actual voting machines themselves that, you know, there's like a folder of votes. They wait until, you know, the end of the you know night and then can like match up, um, you know, whoever didn't actually vote, you know, like use people like from the voter rolls to, you know, sway the election to the other side, like and put them all at the end, which is wacko, <laughs> obviously. But um he, you know, made that speech on January 6th and then talked about it at length uh, in the conversation that we had at the Claremont Gala. So let's play a little more of your interaction with John Eastman, where the, you, the real John Eastman told the truth about what he did. And in particular, where he talks about Mike Pence. And I find that really fascinating. But I mean, like, you know, just supported and supporter. Like, why do you think that Mike Pence didn't do it? Well, because Mike Pence is an establishment guy at the end of the day. And all of 
the establishment Republicans in D.C. bought into this very myopic view that Trump was destroying the Republican Party. And what Trump was doing is destroying the inside the Beltway Republican Party and reviving the Republican Party in the hinterland, right? What they all consider to be, you know, deplorable flyover country. And this uprising that Trump got ahead of, he, he didn't create the movement. The movement was there, yeah. and he saw it and got ahead of it. Um, but no, that's, they can't tolerate that because they all they all have nice, cushy livings inside the Beltway. And you've been listening to more of the clip from the undercurrents executive producer, Lawrence Windsor, who on Saturday at an event hosted by the Claremont Institute, posing as a Trump supporter, she recorded John Eastman defending the January the 6th coup attempt. And in this case, what we just heard is that he really gave me, at least, insight into what Trumpsters are about and why they think the way they are and how divorced and distant they are from the traditional Republicans because he, he trashes Vice President Pence as a Beltway traditional Republican and then basically says, you know, he doesn't get it. And none of them do. They don't understand what's happening out there in the hinterland and that only Donald Trump understands that. And that's where it gave me chills because what he's talking about is insurrection, an anti-democratic coup, a rabble, complete lies and misinformation coming out of Fox and Tucker Carlson and that whole toxic belief system. That is our future, according to John Eastman. That's the future that he wants, and that's the future we may have because the GOP is now Donald Trump's party, and they are doing so much voter suppression that they may come back and take over. And once they do, that'll be the end of American democracy and a permanent one-party you know, neo-fascist rule. So tell me about what you got out of that that glimpse into his understanding about the new GOP, not the old one, but the new one and what it stands for. Well, you know, obviously using words like hinterland uh, (laughs) are, you know, a little bit triggering when you're talking about like potentially like a fascist takeover, you know, it's like echoes of uh, Nazi Germany. But um, it's incredible to me that people feel the most threat from, you know, the the QAnon rioters, you know, the like the the average QAnon believer that's out of these rallies, um, and not these, you know, insurrectionists in suits. And it's deeply sort of confusing to me, like how they can keep, you know, some things in their head about, oh, you know, Trump is like a man of the people. And these establishment uh, guys are just like all concerned about their cushy livings. That's why they don't want to overturn the election. But he's saying these things in Huntington Beach in Orange County, California, at a dinner where uh, you know people are paying four hundred dollars minimum, uh, you know, to attend a thousand dollars for VIP. And so, is this the sort of like populist everyman fantasy that like? wealthy like upper class republicans sort of tell themselves like well he's also we just heard him talk about the hinterland but also the flyover using that analogy and the deplorables uh, which of course worked for trump thanks to hillary clinton so he's really obviously making an appeal 
uh, as though he's one of the deplorables when he, quite clearly, right. as you pointed out, he's not. But he's using the rabble and Trump is using the rabble. And that's what scares me. The people that stormed the Capitol, if you looked at the video, which we've all seen, God help us if they're the people who are going to take over America. Indeed. And indeed, I mean, he seems sincere when he talks to you, right? But I just don't understand how you can hold both of those ideas, those contradictory ideas in your head, where like, you know, all of who he is as this like intellectual, you know, um, upper class Republican, how he's, you know, suddenly this populist sort of man of the people, um, you know, fighting for American democracy. What's crazy about this is, you know, the, this is like at a, they, they were honoring Ron DeSantis uh, and giving him a, a statesmanship award. <laughs> so these are people who, who are, you know, fairly openly advocating for uh, subverting democracy, but uh, awarding awarding folks with statesmanship trophies. Well, I've talked to a few constitutional lawyers and specialists on treason just the other day. And what he what Eastman did is pure sedition. And he may well up, end up in an orange jumpsuit, uh, which is sort of a far cry from the $400, $1,000 plate crowd that he was hanging out with there. So I just in finally, though, Lauren, isn't it clear, though, that what he was trying to do is... He was the ultimate Trump enabler. The rest of them, even the White House counsel, Cipollone, he wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, neither did uh, the acting attorney general, Rosen. Of course, Jeffrey Clark, further down the chain, he was more than willing. So these are the worst kind of people that came out of the woodwork. And we're not talking about the Trumpsters like Cipollone as, as being even traditional Republicans. They're pretty rabid to begin with. But this was too much for them, and at the end of the day, it was too much for Mike Pence, and they were willing to put out a memo, and Eastman must have known this, he was a part of it, they were willing to put out a, a complete lie that Pence had agreed to overturn the elections. So these are people who really are zealots and dangerous and are fanatics, and again, I don't understand, do you think this guy is still accepted in polite society. I know the Claremont Institute's doing their best, but surely there's enough sensible people out there to recognize that you can't have these kind of people in government. They're dangerous. Well, so I, I actually, before I answer that, would like to take issue with Mike Pence being made out to be um, a level above. He was definitely looking for any way that he could do this. And I spoke with him, uh, I guess it was a couple months ago at a, an event in Nebraska and asked him, why didn't you do more? You were there, you could have stopped this. And he said it was, you know, read the constitution, you know, because I couldn't and da 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 da. But he said something very telling, which it was, you know, no state had submitted a, an alternate slate of electors. Well, it was like the day after I broke that story, um, I think it came out in Peril or it was one of these books where his conversation with Dan Quayle came out where he had called Dan Quayle to ask him his advice. And one of the points had been the alternate slates of electors. And, you know, this is something that you hear Eastman talking about the state legislators 
and getting them on board. And it's all a piece of that, you know, state legislators sending in alternate slates. So I don't give Mike Pence a pass at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, but he did, uh, at least he didn't do what Eastman and Trump wanted him to do. And that, I'm not suggesting. But had there been an alternate slate somewhere, like, we're that close. Like, to me, him saying there were no alternate slates. Right. Had there been an alternate slate, that would have impacted Pence's thinking on how he would have uh, acted. Right. But the bottom line with what you're doing and I think at some point you're going to have to have plastic surgery to disguise yourself because eventually the Republicans are going to figure out. What you do is you get Republicans to talk on camera about how they really think and feel and who they really are and what they really believe. And this is completely in contrast to the ones that appear on television, even on Fox, putting out their public face. You get the private face and you get the truth about who they are and what they believe and how they think. And that's really both an important public service and as scary as hell. <laughs> Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. It, it, it is scary, but I I guess what like keeps me doing it is that it's scarier to think that we're on the brink of having our you know, democratic processes shredded by one party in this country that is you know, power hungry and willing to to sacrifice those, you know, democratic ideals at any cost. Well, Lauren Windsor, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Lauren Windsor, who's the executive producer of The Undercurrent, a grassroots political news program, and the creative director of American Family Voices, a progressive non-profit focusing on banking and campaign finance reform. She blogs under the name Lady Libertine, and on Saturday, she attended an event hosted by the Claremont Institute, at which she posed as a Trump supporter and recorded John Eastman defending the January 6th coup attempt. We can take a brief station break. We're back speak. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing the testimony of oil company executives before the Congress today at which they denied funding misinformation even as they are busily funding Facebook ads attacking vulnerable Democratic incumbents for supporting climate change initiatives. You can't Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Tracy Lewis, Policy Counsel in the Energy Group at Public Citizen, where she works at the intersection of climate policy and financial regulatory policy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tracy Lewis. Very glad to be here today with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, and uh, I know you've been uh, watching the hearings all day with all company executives <laughs> being grilled by the Congress or being praised by the Republicans and grilled by the Democrats. You've got Darren Woods, the CEO of ExxonMobil, David Lawler, CEO of BP America, Michael Worth, CEO of Chevron, Gretchen Watkins, president of Shell, Mike Summers, president of the American Petroleum Institute, and Suzanne Clark, president of the oil and gas uh, section of the Chamber of Commerce. So 
I tried to watch some. I've obviously been busy today getting a program <laughs> together. And I just cannot believe what's happened. There isn't a Republican Party anymore. They're a bunch of trolls. All they do is just cheap shots, stupid stuff, obviously angling to be on Fox News and, and social media. And the Democrats are trying to ask serious exactly. questions. And some of them are quite confrontational, I thought. And they didn't often didn't give the the oil companies exactly much of a chance to reply. But nevertheless, if we have more of these kind of Trump-type clowns like Jim Jordan <laughs> getting elected uh, and Trump becomes president again, forget about it. You know, the United States Congress will be like the Jerry Springer show. Well, you know, the Jerry Springer show at least was entertaining and we knew it was fictional. These people have actually been elected to office in a democratic fashion. That means that their constituents felt that they best represented their interests here in Washington, D.C. So that's far more frightening than Jerry Springer ever could be. But the Republican Party has figured out that it cannot win elections on the issues. They've lost, what, seven out of the last eight presidential elections. This last time, overwhelmingly, it was, I mean, beyond a blowout. And their response to loss now, we see it's getting baked in, that they will claim that it's always fraud. So, you know, we're not dealing with people who exist in any kind of human reality that you and I and your listeners exist in. It is one where they are constantly aggrieved where the, where their jobs are taken away like but let's just talk about the things that far right wing interests the GQP what they care about they don't care about the economy because they wouldn't have awarded massive tax cuts to the 1% and leaving the other 99% struggling the covid crisis obviously revealed uh the the deep fissures in our economy in our society. And to hear a Republican congressman actually talking about the loss of good union jobs made me spit out my English breakfast tea. Well, let's talk, let's talk about some of the testimony. I mean... If that's what you I, want to call it. Yes. Well, 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 I'll start with the most recent, towards the end here, Massachusetts Democrat Anna Presley of the squad basically told the energy company executives that my constituents are going to be underwater if the zero emission plans is not enacted. And then just before her, you had Representative Jake LaTurner from Kansas saying that the Democrats are putting out climate misinformation and that they want to make America dependent on Russia and China to fuel our country's baseload and power our electric grid as a national security threat and does nothing to mitigate carbon emissions globally. And then he went on to describe the oil and gas produced in America as among the cleanest and safest in the world. What planet is uh, he on? He's on the planet Xenon. I literally, it, it's, it's really difficult to, to listen to people who deliberately seek to misinform and foment dissension. And, and it makes your brain feel fuzzy literally to listen to that. So we know, for example, Representative Ayanna Presley, she represents Boston in the greater Boston area. 
it's that some parts of it are at sea level or below sea level. We know that if we see increased warming, that will lead to the melt, increased melting of the polar caps, which means that there's more water in our oceans. That means that they will rise and low-lying coastal areas will be underwater. It's not, this is, you know, it's not Star Trek. We're not talking about Star Wars. Like, this is what the science tells us. But what we see, climate denialism is linked to vaccine denialism. There's a, a whole strand of thought that permeates the people who perpetuate these big lies, right? So they, they feed on each other. And, and it's really frustrating because, as you, as you really noted, Ian, you have the represent, Democratic representatives in Congress who are being serious, who are listening to their constituents, who are, are, are worried about their jobs, too. Um, you know, every, everybody who works on a pipeline is not uh, a Republican voter. They're Democrats. They're independents. They're no party whatsoever. But people can see what's happening. Uh, the, for you in California, uh, we've seen weather patterns caused by massive fires that lead to more fires. It's like nearly unheard of. Uh, the, the massive flooding and rains from in the Gulf Coast from far more powerful hurricanes than we've seen historically. We can track these things. We have the evidence. So to, to listen to uh, the, the continued attacks on facts and science and attempts to ameliorate those most severe harms by, hey, what did the IEA report say? We can no longer invest in fossil fuel infrastructure. We have any intent of getting to net zero by 2050 or, you know, or carbon free. And you notice in the, the testimony of the fossil fuel executives when Representative um, Maloney was trying to, to nail them down, my, my favorite was, you know, will you, you know, will you commit? Do you admit and I remember the Shell CEO said, oh, yes, climate is an urgent issue that needs to be addressed. Like, no, is it an existential crisis? And again, it's an urgent issue. We you know it's an urgent issue whether or not I get my foam on my double latte. That's urgent. Okay, Cl the climate crisis is, is existential. So, right. uh, well, she also, she, she also, she uh... also, Maloney also asked all of the executives, one by one, whether they would pledge to not spend any more money on climate denial. And they all denied, of course, they and ever they, spent any money on climate they denial. They ever did it. But none of them it, would it was, uh, make the pledge. So that's... Oh, of course not, because that is the thing that allows them to hold our Congress hostage. You, you notice, uh, uh, especially in the Republican commentary, of how they... They kept hammering on the point of uh, that that fossil fuels protect our economy. They're important to our um, national defense, and so of course it's very difficult for anybody to say, "Oh, I don't care about our national defense. I don't care about my, our economy." But if the Defense Department itself says that climate, the climate crisis represents 
an existential threat to our national security, I'm, I'm willing to listen to them, right? Because they're, they're supposed to be like the most apolitical actor in our government system. So if this is where the science has led the Defense Department, why are Republicans absolutely unwilling to give deference to the very people who they say they hold in, in, the, in the highest esteem? So, so we know it's, that it's in truth that what they're saying has no, no basis in truth. It's merely an attempt to score points, to troll so they can post on Twitter and run on Fox and OAN. That's what's important to them. Governing, listening to science, caring about humans who make more uh, or less than a a million dollars is not what their agenda is. So do you think, though, that there was some expectation that this would be like the famous tobacco hearings where the executives of all the big tobacco companies a number of years back were asked whether nicotine was addictive and they all had to say no, and uh, they were obviously uncomfortable. Do you think there was that moment here today in terms of them admitting that they have been funding climate denial, which, of course, they denied, but many of the Congress people, you know, rattled off the amounts of money that they've been investing in disinformation for decades. Oh, exactly. Well, I mean, so obviously because of COVID, we we didn't have that um, that moment of having CEOs shoulder to shoulder um, taking the oath to tell the truth and lying to our faces. They were comfortably ensconced in their very plush offices um, where we had, we saw some degree of admissions that uh, fossil fuels lead to climate change, which I was actually shocked by. But what's also interesting is how Representative Khanna was was really trying to hold their feet to the fire by asking them to, to acknowledge that CEOs that came before them had lied, which they were absolutely unwilling to do. Because I could also see that their their attorneys were probably on the other side of their laptop saying, do not answer that question. So, um, so we didn't get that dramatic look uh, that that um, I, I think people were, were hoping for. But what was dramatic to me was to actually hear a few CEOs acknowledge science and that fossil fuels are leading to increased temperatures and therefore are threatening our existence. So in general then, given that President Biden is heading off to the COP26 UN climate talks in uh, Glasgow. He's going to stop off and see the Pope before then. Obviously, he was hoping yeah. to get a deal on the infrastructure bills, which are still being hassled out. So he's been a little bit wounded by the, his own party in that regard, or particularly by Senators Mansion and Cinema. Cinema, um, yeah, and they, exactly. And we're obviously covering that as well on today's program. But oh, good. in terms of this folly today this hearing which as i say i think this is the way it is you have this is not a republican party that's worth taking seriously i mean they were just a bunch of clowns asking 
stupid. Dangerous clowns, though. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they were, you know, they're asking these sort of trolling, loaded questions, just attacking exactly. Biden and the Democrats. And over and over n- again. None of yeah. this stuff was ever, none of the serious stuff was ever addressed. So, to the extent to which they sabotaged the possibility of a serious hearing, they the Republicans succeeded, didn't they? Well, you know what, I, I'm i going to take today with a little grain of salt because, I mean, you, you say it really, really clearly, Ian, they're trolls. This is, this is their pattern and practice of what they perceive as, as governance. Um, I also, though, see the real danger in, in the normalization of this behavior um, because, one, it, it makes – people who care weary, knowing that you face opponents who, rather than meet you on the issues, want to talk about personalities or want to talk about, or or just really twist all the story. Like, for example, the issue around um, the federal government subsidizing the cost of building electric vehicle uh, infrastructure across the country. And you had the fossil fuel CEO saying, oh, we should let the private market take care of this. Well, and then, then Republicans laying, weighing in saying, oh, yes, and, and you know, how are these EV stations going to be fueled? Well, we know what exists right at this moment and how we're going to provide energy. And the plan is, of course, that as we move towards a carbon-free future, that the sources of energy that will um, uh, fuel those EV stations will also be net zero carbon-free. But today, what's available? Yes. But to say that we can't do this, we cannot create the infrastructure because our current source of energy is not carbon neutral is, is visible. Because so that means you'll never do anything, and then by the time we do transition to uh, carbon-free, what will be there to help people get from point A to point B? You have to start now. You can't start in 2049. So, and look, I'm not a scientist, but I understand basics. I know your listeners understand how the world functions. Like, if you want to go to college, you can't decide the day before classes start. It starts in kindergarten. So we know these things. And to have a, a Republican Party that, that refuses to acknowledge reality, it makes all this a huge challenge. So then what do you think came out of this hearing today that was useful and helpful? Well, I think what was really important was actually showing the American people exactly where fossil fuel industry stands, what it believes in and what it does, because our only real connection as regular everyday people is really through their advertising, right? And we see those those beautiful commercials, the swooping helicopter coming in on a, you know, a, a beautiful, clean beach. But we know at the same time that we've had multiple oil spills around the world, uh, onshore, offshore, pipelines bursting, uh, uh, fire, huge fires consuming entire towns, killing people. That's the reality that we know. 
but the reality that the fossil fuel industry is able to project using its disinformation, the you know climate denialism, the denial of the science, um, or or using very uh, um, I love wonderful terms of, of phrases, um, you know that climate is the defining challenge of it is the one that's going to wipe humanity off the face of the earth. And we're, because we already see, we're, we're seeing the loss of, of bees and, and, and wildlife and flora and fauna. How can we pretend that it's not happening? We all feel it and see it around the globe. So today's hearing, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that people will read about it. They can go back on YouTube and, and watch snippets of it. It's very long, but you know, you can see key moments at the beginning of what the fossil fuel industry execs say and really make your own decision based on that reality and not you know, beautiful, expensive climate denialism uh, uh, commercials that the fossil fuel industry loves to put out there. Well, Tracy Lewis, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. I had a wonderful time speaking with you, Ian. Well, thank you, Tracy. And again, I've been speaking with Tracy Lewis, who's a policy counsel in the Energy Group at Public Citizen, where she works at the intersection of climate policy and financial regulatory policy. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.